Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence YouTube channel. Today we have Avi Fellman, co-PM of Block Tower Capital. Thank you so much for taking the time. We both got COVID, so thanks for joining me and uh, powering through to get some alpha out for the listeners, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We're going to have a COVID-filled conversation. <laughs> totally. Let's first start with, uh, for anybody who's maybe living under a rock, um, what is your role at Block Tower and what did you do prior to working there? Yeah, sure. So my role at Block Tower, so first, maybe take a step back and tell you guys what Block Tower is. Block Tower is a cryptocurrency investment firm, and we invest across the cryptocurrency space. It was founded in 2017, about August 2017, right before the crazy crazy run up by our two co-founders, Matt Getz and Ari Paul. You, you may have seen Ari around on Twitter. And I came on in 2019 to basically revamp the trading strategies of the main fund. And that's where I've been, that's what I've been doing for the past two years is taking over the main fund, managed it alongside Ari, and basically designed the best ways to tackle trade and invest in the cryptocurrency space. You know, we do a decent amount of just liquid trading. So trading BTC, trading ETH, picking direction and, you know, using both, you know, our, our qualitative understanding of the market and quantitative understanding of the market to generate alpha. And we also dabble in shit coins. You know, we're, we're trading, we're basically trading everything. Anything that moves is fair game, right? So, you know, I'll buy, I'll buy 5 million market cap assets. I'll buy 5 billion market cap assets. I'll buy Bitcoin, you know, I'll short anything. I'll go long anything. We're just a, a, a multi-strat fund in the space. We do, we do a decent amount of early stage investing as well. These days, we've definitely ramped that up over the past, you know, six or six or seven months. And so we're not exclusively a trading fund anymore. And I do spend a lot of time on like deep research, but for the most part, um, you know, I manage the fund with Ari as a trading firm. How do you and Ari like separate leadership and kind of like structure how you manage between the liquid and the liquid side? Yeah, so that's a good question. And if you take a, take a look at a lot of trading firms, generally how it'll work is that you'll have the young guns come in and they'll take the risk. And then you'll have the guys who have seen shit sit there and be the risk managers and tell them when they're going to blow up and make sure that they don't. And that's basically the relationship that I have with Ari right now is I'm in the weeds trying to generate alpha, sizing, sizing positions, taking, taking a lot of risk in the book. And Ari is a fantastic risk manager. And so he plays a little bit of a foil to my risk taker where we'll often debate, okay, well, what happens if this trade goes wrong? What happens if it moves against you? What do you do in a bunch of different situations? How could it possibly go wrong, right? So thinking through all the different risks and different angles of specific trades, as well as more high level, what we'll do is we'll discuss where we want the portfolio to be. Right. So he provides most of his input at the high level, which is, okay, I think that we should be holding a lot of cash right now, or I think that we should be holding a lot of Bitcoin, not that many altcoins right now. Um, and, you know, and we'll debate that we'll, we'll go back and forth, uh, but that's his role as a risk manager is to take a look at the overall portfolio and position it according to his views uh, and my views. Right. But it's a very, it's very much give and take uh, relationship where I'm, I'm a little bit more in the weeds and can focus on that. And he's more high level and can focus on, you know, the best ways to be a high level investor in crypto. When you wake up in the morning and you like come to your computer and you want to just basically get like a quick overview about what happened overnight, what do you check 
you know, do you have like a certain dashboard or checklist that you go through in the morning when you first sit down or like, how does that kind of work for you to get this quick, yeah. you know, synapse of like, okay, what's going on? Oh, I'll give you guys the, I'll give you guys a full rundown of how I, how I assess the markets. Um, I have a couple of newsletters that I, that I subscribe to that, you know, give me, give me daily, daily rundowns, but all of my, all of my like daily habits come from a few sources. So I'll check trading view. I have, you know, a list of all the assets, all my watch list assets that I, that I look at, I'll see what they did overnight. I'll just go really, really quickly spend like 10 seconds on each chart. Just look at it, cycle through what happened. What do the structures look like? You know, where did, where did dispersion in the market happen? What was strong? What wasn't um, all of that? That takes like five minutes, basically run through my tra trading view checklist. Then I'll go to some, then I'll go to skew and I'll look at all the metrics that, you know, they have, which is, which is really great. You know, look at futures basis, look at funding rates, um, all of the stuff that they have on their options and futures tab, just kind of dive into, look at where at the money vol is, look at where wing vol is just to try to get a sense. Okay. Well, you know, what is, what does the market look like today? What is it? You know, what's what happened? And then what I'll do is we have a bunch of internal analytics too, that I'll go just like check. Um, kind of across the board, some of the things that I'll point out that might be useful to, to uh, your viewers are we do a lot of, um, we, we check premiums a lot and also premiums relative to, you know, inter, inter exchange premiums. So we'll look at, okay, well, where did Coinbase trade relative to Binance? Where did Binance trade relative to Huobi and OKX? Where did, you know, and we'll do, I'll do this across a ton of different assets and I'll say, okay, well, I can see strength in this area, weakness in that area. Uh, then what I'll do is, I'll just go to uh, Glassnode and I'll check like a couple of the on-chain metrics that are a little bit more, um, you know, especially if there was a sharp move, this is kind of a maybe. So if there, if there was a big move in the markets, I'll check it. If there wasn't, then you normally day-to-day, -day, it's not a, not a huge thing. And then I sit down with all that information in my head and I write my daily market note. And the way that I structure my daily market note is I have five, five different areas of data collection. I check momentum. So all my metrics that I use to assess momentum in the markets, all my metrics that I use to assess value. So I've talked about that on different podcasts at momentum value framework. I'll look at macro, all the macro assets, and I'll look at just specific data points, right? And data points, um, you know, they can be market, market data points, but I also pull in a lot of sentiment data points too. Uh, and then I'll look at, you know, the altcoin market, what's, ha what's happening there. And then the last thing that I write is positioning, which is, okay, well, how am I positioned and how do I want to be positioned based on all that data? So I know that was a lot, but that I try to do that every single day because I think you need to think critically about the market at every turn in order to be successful here. What I found is a lot of people when they're, you know, when they're, when they're trading, what they'll do is I don't flip my opinion constantly because I view that, you know, I, 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 and I try to use, you know, really robust data points in order to flip my like you know, three, six, 12 month outlook, but you do need to look at it, right? You do need to look at new data points. You do need to update your opinion. And I think it's a really valuable exercise for people when they establish an opinion to have all of the inputs that went into establishing that opinion so that you can come back at a later date, you know, with my market notes, I'll go, okay, well, what did I think three days ago? And why did I think that? And then I can see, Hey, has something changed, right? That have any data points changed? Have any inputs changed that inform my opinion three days ago, that would be different today. And a lot of the time the answer is no. And I kind of just sit there um, and, you know, it's just a good exercise, but that's how you get in the habit of 
questioning yourself and thinking about, okay, well, how do I, how do I approach the markets? And that's just, that, that's just the market overview uh, portion of like how I think about BTC and ETH. And then there's the whole, well, how do I research the rest of the crypto markets? And, you know, where do I want to, what do I want to dive into today? Because um, what I've, what I've noticed over the last, and I've tweeted about this a few times, but what I've noticed over the last, you know, six months is that the market's a lot bigger than it used to be. And so 12 months ago, it was pretty easy to cover everything. Now it's not, you can't, you just, you physically can't, there's just too much going on, you know, where DeFi, L1s, all the crazy stuff that's been popping up across the board and, you know, gaming metaverse. And as an investor in crypto, I, I, ha I have to have an eye on all of it, but I can't. So I try to build systems that allow me to at least get a high level view. So when my analysts come to me with, uh, with ideas and suggestions, I have a good, good enough grasp of it to, you know, make, make good decisions. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. One, uh, one thing that you did say that, that kind of caught my eye was you look at like inter-exchange premiums. And so with that in mind, like, are there certain premiums that are perhaps paint a more bullish or bearish picture for you? For example, I imagine if like Bybit is like trading, you know, way above Coinbase, that's probably a, a bit more concerning than, you know, the opposite. So I'm curious, do you, do you look at that just to kind of gauge where the flows are coming in and out of, or is, is there actual kind of like directional uh, bias that can be gained from looking at those things? There's, there, there's definitely directional bias that can be gained from looking at these things on shorter timeframes, not so much on longer timeframes, although sometimes on longer timeframes. And I won't give away too much of the, too much of the sauce, but it is, it's pretty straightforward, right? So basically what you're looking for is you're looking to identify where are the, where are the smart people trading, right? And where are, the, where are the not so smart people trading? And you can do this for, in a qualitative fashion. So what you can do is you can say, mm, well, I think that not so smart people are trading on Binance. And I think that smarter people are trading on FTX. And I want to compare apples to apples. So I'm going to use the perps and compare those two and look at the, look at the premiums over time. You can do that. And that's fine. I think a better way to do it is to just collect all the data, look at each exchange, create an index for the difference between each exchange, and then backtest that on like a seven day, on a 14 day, on a 28 day, on a 60 day, 120 day, one year timeframe and say, okay, well, whenever premiums are high here, what are the forward returns on a, on a variety of different bases, right? And then what you can start to do is you can actually back out from the data. Uh, okay, well, what is it? Who, who are the smart people? What is the data telling me the smart people are doing as opposed to just making qualitative inferences, right? What, what you have to keep in mind, I think, is that while qualitative inferences can be extremely powerful and I use them a lot in my day-to-day -day trading, you do at the end of the day, you need some confirmation from the data in order to make repetitive decisions that'll provide alpha. Um, you know, I don't think this is as true in the altcoin market, but it's definitely true in BTC, ETH and large caps. I think at this point, the amount of talent that's in crypto and the types of people that are trading these things on a directional basis are, they're doing all this. And so if you're not, I think it's very easy to get uh, caught off guard with, uh, with moves. And it's not particularly difficult, right? Like everything that I've outlined is actually, I would characterize as table stakes for hedge funds and for professionals. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a professional trader and you're not doing this, then that was fine a year ago. It's kind of like base, basic stuff at this point. And then there's a lot more advanced stuff that you, know, you, can, you can get into that we actually don't really do at Block Tower. We're, we're, very, we're actually pretty basic with our trading. 
we're good at it, but uh, we, 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 we keep it, we keep it simple for the most part. Uh, and I think, I think that, that also is, that also is important, but, but you do need to incorporate these types of things. Right. And uh, I'll, I'll go on a, a little bit of a tangent here. It's not just, it's not just premiums. You know, it's uh, a lot of people look at order books, for example, and I put out this thread, you have to, you have to look at order books across exchanges and, you know, aggregate them in a, in a, in a way that tells you, okay, well, this exchange has, you know, has high hit rates when it comes to sell walls. And this exchange has high hit rates when it comes to buy walls. You know, you, you need that information in the back of your head, right? So when you're looking at like FTX and, pe and people are posting buy walls, it's like that, that actually historically hasn't been nearly as powerful as Bitfinex buy walls. Whereas FTX sell walls have been, you know, you know relatively strong historically, uh, if you look at the data compared to Bitfinex sell walls, you know? So, I mean, Bitfinex is still better, but they're a little bit more equal. In, in, in that sense. So, so it's all, all these sort of things that I think you have to parse out that I think gets lost when you just, you know, look at it in a very simple manner. Let's go ahead and dive into kind of current state of the market, your thoughts on, um, you know, just the general market outlook. Um, I mean, let, let's first kind of back up and talk about your thesis over the last call it month or so. I remember you did a podcast, I think it was like on the margin or something with Blockworks. And you kind of highlighted how you were kind of bearish heading into the end of the year because of, you know, the kind of this lackluster of flows that you were expecting hitting into the end of the year. So let's kind of briefly talk about that and then how that kind of ties into what your view is now. Yeah. So that was, I think, end of, end of December or maybe like a little bit more to mid-December. And I'll walk you through how my view has evolved because I think it's important to understand where I'm coming from, to understand where I am now. And in around end of November or so, I was looking at the market and I said to myself, hey, well, a lot of people, a huge amount of people have been banking that Q4 was gonna be very bullish. And I know based on positioning, I know based on sentiment, I know based on anecdotes that people are bullish in Q4 right? They, they were bullish heading into December. They were kind of expecting that. And there were a couple of things that stood out to me. One is that if it wasn't bullish, there were a lot of people that had to sell. And two, a lot of people seem to be ignoring the weakness in the market that was both coming from equities at the time and just clearly from Bitcoin, right? I mean, at that point, we had sold off from about 69 to, to 60K. And I was looking at this and I was saying to myself, well, you know, normally what you get or you get really strong inflows the first week of the first, you know, day or week of December. And we didn't. December 1st came and pretty lackluster. We didn't, we didn't really go anywhere. And so that gives you sort of a hint, right? If your thesis is predicated on inflows uh, and you don't get inflows on the first or second, then maybe you have to reassess. And so at that point, I think I went on, on, the, on the margin nine and said, look, I think people are, are overly bullish into this Q4 uh, Q4 rotation. And I think that that's going to end in, in tragedy. And what we did is we did, we did get the sell-off and halfway through December, I started saying, Hey, I think beginning of January is going to be really bullish because I think what's going to happen is a ton of people that were slow to allocate kind of similar to what happened in Jan in uh, January of last year in December of last year, a ton of people are going to allocate Jan one because they got their confirmations, you know, maybe it was Q3, Q4, I'm talking about people like pension funds, endowment funds, uh, all these guys got confirmation and they're going to allocate in, in, in January. And so I, I was saying to myself and to, you know, anybody that would listen, hey, I think that we're going to be bullish, you know, starting in uh, mid-December, I was like, okay, I think, I think we basically priced in everything, I think we're going to be bullish. Now, obviously that wasn't true, 
right? Like I was, I was just wrong on that point. There weren't a ton of inflows coming in in, in January. And looking back, this isn't forward-looking because I, I'm admitting, you know, I was, I was incorrect about those inflows, but you at least had time to get out, right? Because January 1st comes by, January 2nd, January 3rd, January 4th. And January 4th, you know, you're sitting at 46K and it's been four days into the new year and there are no inflows, right? And so when you have a thesis and it's predicated on inflows, kind of like it was in, in December, you have to update your opinion. And so at that point, you say to yourself, okay, well, what I expected isn't happening, and I need to probably get out of these stale longs, right? Because that, by definition, they're stale if you, if you don't incorporate new information. And basically, what I view as a reason for why those inflows didn't come is I'm not sure that I was necessarily wrong on the fact that inflows, that people got approved to allocate. I think I was wrong that people were going to allocate because I wasn't looking at the macro markets. And starting in November, what, what happened was the Fed pivoted to being hawkish. And I think what all these allocators had in the back of their mind was, why don't we wait until March, until we see if a rate hike comes? Why don't we let the equity markets play out, potentially end in a flush, and let's see if Jerome steps in and does something with it, right? And then we can start allocating to a risk asset like Bitcoin. Because until that happens, there's just a lot of uncertainty hanging in the air, and you probably don't want to be heavily allocated to an asset that's so far down the risk curve, which is Bitcoin. And so I think what ended up happening is that those guys just didn't come in for that reason. And Arthur Hayes actually outlined this really nicely in his blog post to his credit long before I came to this conclusion, long before a lot of people came to this conclusion. And I think he's, he's right that people are just waiting to see the air clear. And so I think there are two ways that the air clears. One is that the S&P goes sideways through the rate hike, and then it doesn't sell off. The other way that it clears is that we get a flush in the equities market, that we get like a really aggressive flush. And people look at that and they say, the Fed's going to do something because to them, you know, they have, they have two mandates, right? They, they've, got the, they've got a few mandates now, apparently, but you know, two, 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 core, two core mandates that they, that they used to refer to, you know, keep, it, keep inflation under control and you know, keep you know, employment looking good. And if the stock market crashes, then they go from being right now solely focused on inflation to also being focused on, on employment. And so I do think that you need that flush in order to get them, get them to act and you know, remove a little bit of that uncertainty from the air. And so I think that those are the two paths that I see. And because those are, those are the two paths that I see, I'm on board with basically just keeping your exposure fairly low, you know, over the coming one to two months, and then just waiting for one of these two opportunities to present themselves, right? So if S&P sells off, you know, five, 6% from here, I'm a big, I'm a buyer. I'm a pretty big buyer of that. Uh, and I think Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin would probably be something like 30 to 35 in that scenario. Uh, you know, if it goes sideways, maybe Bitcoin holds 40. And maybe what we do is we squeeze a lot of the shorts that came in at, you know, 43, 44. And so maybe we just get a little bit more of a range. And you can trade that too. But in order to get on like full bull mode, what I would need to see is I would need to see the uncertainty stripped out of the market. And I don't see that right now. And so I'm waiting. Right. And the way that we're positioned right now is, is, is not bullish, not like create, we're not net short. We're, we just have a lot of cash on hand. And the way that we're approaching the market is 
we're trading other coins really actively. So we're trading things like near FTM, Atom, uh, basically anything that's realizing vol, we're trading it very actively, but we're taking all those trades and we're pairing it against shorts because we don't want to increase our overall exposure. And so that's how I'm thinking about the market is that there's actually a lot of dispersion right now, not over the past couple of days, which I think is something you, you have to, you have to note over the past few days that that dispersion has gone away. But, um, right now over the last like three weeks, at least there's been a ton and that that's where the alpha is. And that's where we've been playing. The, the alpha is not in uh, trading Bitcoin directionally right now. Sure. So there's a lot I want to kind of dig into there. Let's first start with, uh, you, you talked briefly about kind of the, uh, the open interest that's been built up. So what do you think about the fact that we've just held this massive amount of open interest relative to Bitcoin's market cap? We're just kind of hanging out here um, in terms of when do you think we'll finally see that kind of flush out? And what do you think about the positioning? Because I think looking at funding, funding's just kind of been flat. I mean, we've seen it kind of, uh, you know, more negative over the last like week or so. Um, but I'm curious kind of what your opinion is on that positioning. I'm fairly certain that it's moderately aggressive shorts and hedging. So what I don't know is I don't know how much of it is naked shorting. And I don't know how much of it is just hedging against other positions. Um, Cause obviously like we're doing a lot of that too, right? So some, some of that open interest on ETH and BTC is us short ETH BTC, but buying other assets. And I think that that's actually prevalent kind of across the board right now, because a lot of people have a similar outlook to me. Um, where you know they're they're sort of pair, pairing these trades up, and so I don't necessarily think that these guys are. It's as likely for there to be a crazy short squeeze like there was in July, but I do think a sizable portion of it are shorts, and I do think a decent amount of it are, are retail shorts. Now the thing is that they have spot flows on their side. That's the thing, right? And so you're only going to get a crazy squeeze if those spot flows reverse dramatically. And the only way that those spot flows reverse dramatically in my mind is if the equity markets stabilize or reverse. And so those shorts are looking pretty comfy. But okay, let's say we get up to the 43, 44K area again. I think that we probably start to see a squeeze. You know, maybe, maybe you're looking at 43 as an entry to you know, target, a, target a 48. And I do think that we, we would see a pretty aggressive close of that open interest. Like if you look at the Binance USDT open interest, we collapsed on the move down and then, you know, we retraced the entire thing in, in open interest terms. And I'll reiterate that I do think that the vast majority of that are shorts of one form or another. Um, I think a decent amount of retail shorts. And so the short squeeze opportunity is still there, but, you know, in, uh, in July where we got that crazy move from 30 to 40, it was because the spot flows were just absolutely massive, right? So look, go look at the order books. There were just huge stack bids, massive stack. We just don't have that now. Uh, we just don't have the flows. The, the Fed was super dovish back then. They're not now. And so the ingredients for a squeeze similar to that, they're just not there. Uh, and I think the, the violence of the move is just going to be muted because of that. So that that's that's my general that's my general outlook, and it's definitely not a reason to bet that we are going to get the squeeze. It's a reason to potentially hop onto momentum if you see the squeeze happening. It's not really a an, an argument to to buy here betting about it will though in a way that it was in um you know in, in a way that it was in, in July. And I think I think the other the other side of this is that uh, people were really 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 scared 
in July. I think people are scared now, but they're still a little bit complacent because alts are doing pretty well. And so there isn't a lot of flow that's going to come directly into BTC in the same way that there was in July, because in July, everybody, and I mean, absolutely everybody thought alts were going to zero. And so, you know, there wasn't as much of this effect where capital just goes, you know, into, into things like FTM, into things like near that wasn't really happening a huge amount. Um, you know, it was happening in NFTs a bit, but not, not nearly to the scale that it's happening right now. So I think that's the other thing that you have to consider. Do you think like, like there's a potential for like a capital rotation back to BTC if we do see some kind of like highly volatile move, whether it's like, you know, equities tanking or some major catalyst for Bitcoin? Do you think because of that positioning that you just talked about, it seems like a lot of capital is dispersed amongst, you know, a bunch of alts. And like, I keep seeing like all these funds getting raised. None of them are buying Bitcoin. They're all buying, you know, metaverse or like, you know, these early stage projects, that kind of thing. What do you think about some kind of potential like capital rotation back to maybe not Bitcoin specifically, but just like non-trash things and just majors in general? I will say that a decent amount of the performance from assets have come from, in my mind, non-trash, right? So I actually looking near, near is a little bit overvalued now, I think relative to the amount of economic activity that's on the platform, you know, we're, we're seeing out performance of things like Frax, we're seeing out performance from things like Tribe, um, from, you know, Curve, Convex, and from the L1 space, you know, FTM is relatively undervalued relative to usage uh, in my mind. So I think, I do think that a, at least a, a decent amount of this dispersion is coming into assets that are higher quality. That doesn't answer your question though. To directly answer your question, I think that BTC D rallies in general are going to be a fade this year. And the reason that they're going to be a fade this year is because the philosophical framework of, oh, you, you enter with Bitcoin and then you go to other assets and that's the money flow of crypto. That's just completely broken down. I just, I just don't think that that's happening with a huge amount of people. I think people are going directly into alts and they're going directly into alts because people love new things. They love new things. And nobody's getting rich on Bitcoin anymore is what people are thinking right now, especially like retail. And so I think that the best argument for BTCD up is BTC down. I think that's a really good thing. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, that's a really good thing to bet on is if BTCD is, if BTC is down, then BTCD is going to be way up. Because the other, the other, the flip side of this is that a lot of people allocating alts, they don't have fundamental conviction in them in the same way that a lot of people have fundamental conviction in, in, in BTC and, and even, even ETH, ETH to some level. I mean, look at AVAX. AVAX went from $60 to $8 like six months ago. And it's 80, $82 now. BTC trades 30K. Like, I think a lot of people panic out of that position, you know, because I, 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 don't, I don't view them as, as, as extreme strong hands. I view them as, people that generally believe that crypto has been up only for a long period of time and will continue to be. And that's, you know, why they've allocated to these names. Um, so BTC down, I think alts get absolutely murdered on a short time frame. Now I've talked a lot about my dispersion thesis on a longer medium term time frame, and that I still believe because I think what happens is BTC sells off, alts get murdered. And then over time, as long as BTC doesn't just, BTC goes, doesn't go straight down forever, what ends up happening is that they just rebound like crazy on the moves higher because people, instead of going from BTC into alts, they just go, okay, risk is on. We're going straight back into alts. And these things just rocket back higher, way higher than, you know, the amount that they fell, especially the high quality ones. And you kind of saw this with, uh, with Solana and Luna in the previous cycle, right? 
So BTC sells off from 64K to 30K. Solana and Luna sell off like crazy. BTC rallies from 30K to 40 to, to 50K and they like 10X, right? And I think that that dynamic is going to play out a lot. And what you're going to have is you're going to have a lot of people screaming, see, it wasn't different. It wasn't different. It wasn't different. All these alts collapse 70% on the way down and they're going to be quiet when they 10X on the way up. Um, and I think that's, that's going to be my general outlook for this year is buy when people say alts are over, uh, you know, and sell when people say, wow, there's a ton of dispersion in this market. And, and this is, this is working really, really well, you know, so like a few days ago uh, as, as an example. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you think needs to happen for Bitcoin to break this correlation it's had to the NASDAQ? It seems like at least in the last like, couple of weeks or so, it's really just kind of been like gridlocked, maybe not so, you know, the last couple of days, but generally speaking, it seems like in, in like, you know, the recent, like last month or two, it's been like really heavily correlated to sell off, you know, in, in NASDAQ and just general equities. Um, like, do you think we need to have some kind of like specific catalyst for Bitcoin to break out of that? Or do you think like over time, um, you know, Bitcoin will just kind of trade on its own or like, what do you, do you think like that, that correlation strengthens over time as you know, that the asset becomes more, you know, institutionalized, if you will. And it's like, what do you think about that correlation in general moving forward? It's kind of the, it's kind of the sad thing about the institutionalization of Bitcoin is that it's basically made me confident that this correlation is only going to increase over time because what I've talked about this a little bit, so I won't beat a dead horse here, but you just have way more people that hold both Bitcoin and equities. And just because of that simple fact that three years ago, a bunch there were most people that held Bitcoin, you know, a, well, not most, but a small percentage of people that, that held Bitcoin also held equities. And now it's a ton of people that hold Bitcoin also hold equities. The fact that there are, those portfolios now hold both just means that in general, it's going to be more correlated, right? Because if equities rip, and you want to keep a similar balance and you need to sell some equities, buy some Bitcoin, push Bitcoin price up. Equities go down. You want to keep a similar balance, vice versa, sell some Bitcoin, buy equities, keep the same balance. So I think that correlation just sort of, um, you know, reinforces itself in a flywheel. Also, there are a lot of correlation traders now in the market. There are a lot of algos that'll just trade Bitcoin and the S&P directly together. When does it decouple? When there's not as much uncertainty in the air. Right. So right now, a ton of uncertainty. So when the S&P sells off a percent, people aren't thinking in their minds, oh, wow, uh, you know, this is just, you know, a normal move, whatever. It sold off a percent. You know, we're fine. We're just like gyrating in an uptrend. People are thinking to themselves now, oh, man, like a rate hike is going to crash this thing. And so there's just a lot more fear uh, with every move lower in the S&P because there's a lot more uncertainty around that. And so I think in those types of scenarios, what you get is you get pretty high correlation with BTC tick for tick. The other thing is that there's just not a lot of idiosyncratic flow in Bitcoin, right? You just don't have those people that are, that are allocating right now. You don't have a ton of retail in the market. Basically what you have are a bunch of PVP traders that are looking at each other and they're shooting at each other every day. You know, they load their gun, they walk into the market, they shoot each other. That's all that's, all, that's, all that's happening right now. And so one of the best tools for predicting BTC price action when there are no idiosyncratic flows is the S&P. And so a lot of people are just trading off the S&P right now, right? So it's like, okay, well, what am I going to do if I'm, a, if I'm, if I'm trading and I, I have no edge in, 
in predicting retail flows or predicting institutional flows. Oh, wait, the S&P sold off a percent of Bitcoin's only sold off 50 bips. Great, that's a trade. Let me sell that. Um, and, you know, that that obviously happens on a discretionary basis to a small part, mostly an algorithm basis. So basically, what do we need? The, we need the uncertainty to go away or we need idiosyncratic flows to go back. And I think those two things are tied at the hip right now. I really do think those two things are tied at the hip. You talked about this a little bit with alts, but what do you think about the kind of like intra-crypto correlations? Do you think those kind of disperse over time and you'll see like certain sectors kind of like take the life of its own? I do. I basically, my thought process on this is that uh, we're going to get, we're going to get dispersion on a medium term timeframe and across sectors, right? So wherever the hot ball of money decides to go at any given time based on the flavor of the month. That's kind of that's kind of my view as to how this is how this is going to play out, uh, and monitoring sentiment, monitoring interest, monitoring usage is going to be really important. As is doing more fundamental research as to catalyst protocol upgrades. All of that going to be very important over the next six months. And understanding, you know, not just understanding, you know, the, the simple okay, well, this is this is launching. Understanding the complicated, this is happening. So that means this, right? Um, so one example of this would be, let's say AVAX launches subnets and you know that they're launching subnets and the first subnet that launches is a DeFi protocol. Then maybe what happens is you get a ton of DeFi protocols looking at this and saying, hey, you know, we should also launch on subnets. Okay, so what if they start launching on subnets? What if you get just a resumption in the theme of application-specific blockchains? And so maybe what you want to think of is, okay, well, maybe Atom comes back into play. Maybe Polkadot comes back into play. Maybe there's some assets you know, elsewhere uh, that come into play. And maybe some multi-chain assets that you know, aren't focused on building out their own chain do badly over that time period, right? So it's a little bit more of, a, of, a, of putting together a puzzle. Makes sense. And with that in mind, what are some of the narratives and sectors without maybe, you know, dropping specific names that you're kind of eyeing uh, in 2022 moving forward? Got a whole list for you. <laughs> nice. So very bullish on real world assets. And what I mean by that is I'm very bullish on things like um, Goldfinch, for example, that just launched that we invested in full disclosure uh, that are letting credit funds, fintechs from you know, Brazil, from abroad, access liquidity of the crypto markets. And you know, people with USDC can get something like a 12% to 13% lending out to these guys. And you might ask, but well, why are you? that seems low in crypto, we get 50%. And my answer to that is yes, a lot of these protocols are also running liquidity incentive programs, which is what's gonna drive a lot of the TBL. So they're gonna be paying you out their token. And they're also gonna be a little bit more insulated against uh, market risk because what they're, they're not lending directly you know, they're, they're not directly just issuing yield. They also have like real interest payments that are flowing in for real people. So I think I'm seeing this on two ends. I'm, see, I'm, gonna, I'm seeing interest grow from the crypto native crowd, but I'm seeing a huge amount of interest come from the traditional credit crowd and real world assets. And I think we're like three months ahead of this and things are valued at like 200 mil, where in six months, I could easily see them valued at four bill. Um, so I'm pretty bullish on this area. Super bullish on structured products and option vaults, which I won't going to too much because I think that's that's a dead horse, but very bullish on that that sector. Very bullish on 
dApps right now because I think that there's a lot of innovation happening with token economic restructuring. And so I think that there's going to be a little bit of a dApp resurgence um, and you know, revenues and usage and TVL on the dApp layer, not the L1 layer is going to become more important. Under that, I think lies the curve toke like bribery wars, which I would characterize as protocols like Liquid Driver popping up on Phantom, buying spirit swap to direct yield and things like uh, Convex, obviously. Um, and Butterfly just announced that they're launching a bribery protocol called Hidden Hand, um, which seems to be kind of the direction that a lot of these projects are going in or they're trying to build out you know, systematic bribery protocols, which sounds bad, but it's actually kind of interesting. Um, and I think that bridges and interoperability are the area that I'm probably the most interested in. And what I mean by that is not just like bridges, but I, I mean applications that use bridges as the backend so that you will can go onto an application and interact with like eight different chains without knowing that you're interacting with eight different chains. That's being built right now. And it's finally being built because there are finally bridges out there that are useful enough to build this on top of that can not just send assets from place to place, that can send transactions from place to place, right? So I'll be able to buy BT, WBTC on AVAX and sell it on ETH in one click. And that's coming soon. And I'm very bullish on that. That's really interesting because like we have all these L1s, but then talking about like how can they kind of work together and like be, you know, have interoperability. Like that's really interesting. Cool. Um, Avi, I don't want to, you know, I know you got a, a hard stop here. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. I just want to give you a... a quick hand to, you know, plug yourself in and uh, your Twitter and anything else you want to leave viewers with. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Well, I mean, this has been, this has been really fun and I've been, I've been a fan of yours for a while. You, you just tweet really great stuff. So Thanks, man. Uh, I just lot. appreciate the ability to come on here and, and talk shop with you. Yeah, totally. This is, this is a blast. Cool, man. Um, and last, last thing before we wrap up, any uh, alpha you can give the, the viewers, whether that's trading-wise, life alpha, anything? Listen to the first 40 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> Love it. That's my alpha. <laughs> Sweet. I'll be filming, everybody. Thanks, man.